And King David in Psalm 22 wrote these words that were prophetic about the experience Christ would have on the cross. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me, so far from my cries of anguish? My God, I cry out by day, but you do not answer by night, but I find no rest. Yet you are enthroned as the Holy One. You are the one Israel praises. In you our ancestors put their trust. They trusted and you delivered them. They, to you they cried out and were saved. In you they trusted and were put, not put to shame. But I... I am a worm and not a man, scorned by everyone, despised by the people. All who see me mock me. They hurl insults, shaking their head. He trusts in the Lord, they say. Well, let the Lord rescue him. Let him deliver him, since he delights in you. Please be seated as Dave brings us a song. Words will be on the screen if you want to sing along. As he sings, feel free. And that will be followed by a second song he'll invite us to stand for. Our first reading is taken from Matthew chapter 27, verses 32 to 44, which you'll find on page 998 of the Church Bibles. And it's entitled... The Crucifixion of Jesus. As they were going out, they met a man from Cyrene named Simon, and they forced him to carry the cross. They came to a place called Golgotha, which means the place of the skull. There they offered Jesus wine to drink mixed with gall, but after tasting it, he refused to drink it. When they had crucified him, they divided up his clothes by casting lots. And sitting down, they kept watch over him there. Above his head they placed the written charge against him. This is Jesus, the King of the Jews. Two rebels were crucified with him, one on his right and one on his left. Those who passed by hurled insults at him, shaking their heads and saying, You who are going to destroy the temple and build it in three days, save yourself. Come down from the cross, if you are the Son of God. In the same way, the chief priests, the teachers of the law and the elders mocked him. He saved others, they said, but he can't save himself. He's the king of Israel. Let him come down from the cross and we will believe in him. He trusts in God. Let God rescue him now if he wants him, for he said, I am the son of God. In the same way, the rebels who were crucified with him also heaped insults on him. This is the word of the Lord. Our second reading this morning is taken from Matthew 27, 45 to 66. This is a continuation of Barbara's reading. The death of Jesus, found on page 999. From noon until three in the afternoon, darkness came over all the land. About three in the afternoon, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, Eli, Eli, lama sabatini which means, my God, my God, 
Why have you forsaken me? When some of those standing there heard this, they said, He's calling Elijah. Immediately one of them ran and got a sponge. He filled it with wine vinegar, put it on a staff and offered it to Jesus to drink. The rest said, Now leave him alone. Let's see if Elijah comes to save him. And when Jesus had cried out again in a loud voice, he gave up his spirit. At that moment, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. The earth shook, the rock split, and the tombs broke open. The bodies of many holy people who had died there were raised to life. They came up out of the tombs after Jesus' resurrection and went into the holy city and appeared to many people. When the centurion and those with him who were guarding Jesus saw the earthquake and all that had happened, they were terrified and exclaimed, Surely he was the Son of God. Many women were there watching from a distance. They had followed Jesus from Galilee to care for his needs. Among them were Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James and Joseph, and the mother of Zebedee's sons. At evening, as evening approached, there came a rich man from Arimathea named Joseph, who had himself become a disciple of Jesus. Going to Pilate, he asked for Jesus' body, and Pilate ordered that it be given to him. Joseph took the body, wrapped it in a clean linen cloth, and placed it in his own new tomb that he had cut out of the rock. He rolled a big stone in front of the entrance of the tomb and went away. Mary Magdalene and the other Mary were sitting there opposite the tomb. The guard at the tomb. The next day, the one after preparation day, the chief priests and the Pharisees went to Pilate. Sir, they said, we remember that while he was still alive, that deceiver said, after three days I will rise again. So give the order for the tomb to be made secure until the third day. Otherwise his disciples may come and steal the body and tell the people that he has been raised from the dead. This last deception will be worse than the first. Take a guard, Pilate answered. Go, make the tomb as secure as you know how. So they went and made the tomb secure by putting a seal on the stone and posting the guard. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks, Bruce, and uh, hello, everyone. <laughs> hello to all seven of you. Uh, <laughs> great to be in church with you, and uh, happy Easter, if I can say that. Um, keep your Bibles open to Matthew 27, if you could. That would be super helpful to me. I will be referring to it throughout. As you do that, uh, I'll lead us in prayer, and then we'll get right underway. Heavenly Father God, thank you for the Lord Jesus, whose death we commemorate this day. And uh, settle our minds upon your scriptures and move our hearts by them so that we might love him, the Lord Jesus, with all that we have. Amen. Not many things can be described as one of a kind. Uh, for example, I was reading a, a National Geographic article entitled, One of a Kind Sea Creatures, during the week. And uh, there, there are some pretty crazy sea creatures out there, or down there, as the case may be. For example, the, the Yeti Crab. So unusual, it's not that big, um, so unusual that a whole new family of animal had to be created in order to classify it. It lives in a 2,300 metre deep trench 
in the Pacific Ocean south of Easter Island, and they don't even know what those big hairy long arms are for, but they think it's got something to do with helping this blind critter find a mate. Oh, there you go. Uh, <laughs> oh. The ribbon eel, you're going to love the next one. The ribbon eel, um, beautiful thing. But the reason why they're so interesting is that they're all born male. Oh. Um, and uh, what happens is they eventually all turn into females and change colour into yellow. Uh, I thought, what would that be like if that happened to humans? And then I thought, oh, best not think about it. Anyway, uh, they, they lay, the older yellow ladies lay eggs which are fertilised by their younger blue male friends. So that's interesting, right? Last on the list of National Geographic's one-of-a-kind sea creatures is the flying fish, which truly is amazing. Like, it's a fish that flies, as the name implies. Here's my issue with everything on the list. None of the creatures are truly one-of-a-kind. The, the yeti crab reaches out blindly for a mate. Uh, there are, in, with the ribbon eels, there's, uh, you know, lots of young male blue ones, or lots of older lady yellow ones. And in other words, there's plenty of them, not one of a kind. And even National Geographic admitted that there are over 40 species of flying fish. So how can you possibly call them one of a kind? They're intriguing, yes. They're beautiful, certainly, but hardly one of a kind. This week, Tiger Woods, you would have seen, won his fifth U.S. Masters Golf Championship at Augusta some 14 years after last putting on the winner's green jacket. Okay, old guys, there's hope for us all yet. People say that he is one of a kind, but the truth is there were others like Jack Nicholas before him. There'll be others like him who follow. He's exceptional, sure, but not entirely unique. But today on Good Friday, I want to suggest that Jesus' death is truthfully a one-of-a-kind death. It's a death like no other. Dying is, of course, the most common human encounter. It's the greatest leveler. It's a guaranteed life experience. But Jesus' death that we commemorate today really is unique. And I'd like to show you from our passage today in Matthew 20, 27, that Jesus is a death like no other. So I hope you have Matthew 27 open in front of you. Actually, before we, we get into um, why I think Jesus' death is a death like no other, a genuine one of a kind, I think I first need to show you why, in fact, it was a death just like every other. That is, it was an historical death. It was a real death. Uh, it really happened, which might seem like a very low bar to aim for, given that death is the most common human experience other than birth. But you do meet people who want to cast doubt on whether Jesus really died and whether he actually rose to life three days later, as we'll celebrate on Sunday. And I guess that if you can successfully show that, that he didn't actually die, nor rise again physically from the dead, then you've successfully undermined the, the central critical facts of the Christian story. But I don't think that's possible, because his death was a real death. And you can see that just with the attention to detail that's in the, the passage that Bruce read to us. Uh, you can see the time markers there in um, the opening verse, verse 45, as Jesus hung on the cross for about three hours, from midday till three in the afternoon. You can see some very ordinary features of the Roman method of execution. There was a Roman centurion there, likely a Roman soldier who offered Jesus a drink of wine vinegar on the staff. 
and that was most likely diluted with water. It was the usual refreshment for soldiers and laborers. It was kind of the red bull of the day. You see the moment of Jesus' death captured there in verse 50. He cried out again in a loud voice and gave up his spirit. He really died. And of course you have that significant detail of his burial and the guard which was attached to his burial. The Romans didn't normally bury executed criminals. They sort of hastily just threw their bodies onto the ground. The Jews usually ensured that executed criminals were buried in a public plot. It was unusual for them to be buried in family tombs. But what we see from Joseph of Arimathea in verses 57 to 60 not only guarantees that Jesus was actually dead and buried as a matter of historical record, it also ensures that he was given a decent and respectful burial. Joseph probably acted speedily in order to secure the body of Jesus from Pilate, the Roman governor, because he needed to have had all that taken care of before sunset, around 6 p.m., when the Sabbath, the Jewish Sabbath day started. It was unlawful for a Jew to touch or bury a corpse on the Sabbath according to their traditions. And so Jesus was buried hastily and respectfully. And you might have noticed that the same women who witnessed his death in verse 56 were the same ones who saw him buried in verse 61. In fact, it wasn't just Joseph and the women who saw Jesus die and buried. The Jews were very keen that the disciples didn't steal the body of Jesus from the tomb. And so the Jewish leaders got permission from Pilate to have a guard sent to secure the sealed tomb where Jesus' body lay. And it's likely that Matthew, who wrote this biography, included this information to kind of refute any stories emerging about the disciples stealing Jesus' body in order to discredit Christian claims. Because you know what? There's no real new ideas when it comes to opposing the basic facts of the story. But Jesus was certainly dead, and he was securely buried, and the Roman guard made sure of it. It was a real death. But all I've done so far is to show that Jesus had genuinely died as each of us will also experience at the end of our lives it's the exact opposite of my argument isn't it that Jesus death is truly unique a fair dinkum one of a kind and so in order to advance my argument I'd like to show you that his death was an upsetting death as well as a real death now in recent years there's been I think a significant movement away from having kind of somber funerals that mark a person's passing towards having more up beat celebrations of life. I mean, I've experienced that even in the funerals that I've had to take. Uh, personally, I don't see why you can't do both. You know, um, genuinely celebrate someone's life, but also soberly commemorate their sad passing. But not everyone agrees with me. Take, for example, Malcolm Brocklehurst. He's an 81-year-old retired aircraft engineer from Lancashire in England. And he's, he's very carefully planned out every step of his own funeral as an expression of his quirky personality. Uh, after he dies, Malcolm's remains will be taken to Bloomfield Park. That's the home ground of the Blackpool Football Club. Uh, he's going to be in a coffin shaped like an aeroplane that's coloured tangerine to match his favourite club's home strip. And in fact, his body will be dressed in his favourite club's home strip. 
And after the casket is conveyed on a flatbed truck to Blackpool Crematorium, the congregation will be invited to, and let me quote this, spin his propeller to fly him to the moon. <laughs> He's even had a dress rehearsal. I mean, that would have been a hoot, wouldn't it? <laughs> I can't help but think that as a culture, we will do just about anything rather than confront death, even at a funeral. It's all too upsetting. When I say that Jesus' death is upsetting, I don't just mean that in the ordinary way that death is upsetting. I mean Jesus' death upset the natural or the normal order of things. Uh, Have a look with me again at that first verse in our passage today where darkness came over the land for three hours in the middle of the day. That doesn't normally happen. It's an overturning of the natural order of things. It's highly reminiscent of the plagues in the land of Egypt, way back in the book of Exodus in the Old Testament, which signaled the judgment of God as he struck the sun, as it were. You see it again in verse 51, when at the death of Jesus, the curtain in the temple in Jerusalem, which prevented people from accessing the presence of God, was torn in two from top to bottom. Do you know in Jewish Jewish custom, only one person, the high priest, ever went beyond that curtain into the presence of God. Only one person, only once a year, with a sacrificial offering to pay for the sins of the people. Accessing the presence of God there was such a precarious thing to do that this one high priest would put on sacred garments as he approached the presence of God beyond the curtain. And so fearful a thing was this approach They would tie a rope around his ankle so that if he was struck down by the sheer holiness of God, the other priests could pull him out by that rope without having to face the presence of God themselves. But this curtain that barred access by humans to the presence of God is torn in two. You see, the normal order of things is overturned. It's all upset. I really like the way that it was torn in two from the top to the bottom. It just convinces us that it wasn't some mischievous disciples who'd stuck in there with a pair of scissors and cut their way up shows us that the initiative comes from God well it always does doesn't it and because of Jesus death people were no longer barred access to God they could approach him with confidence rather than not at all or perhaps just one person with great timidity and fear You see the normal order of things upset again there in verse 52 where at first uh, read it sounds like a zombie apocalypse with the bodies of many holy people rising to life and appearing to many others in Jerusalem after Jesus himself was raised from the dead. Odd inclusion here from Matthew who was one of Jesus' disciples, one of the eyewitnesses. Odd because it's not mentioned in the other biographies of Jesus' life, the three other Gospels, and odd because he mentions it without really elaborating upon it. And so we might be tempted to think that Matthew was just making it up, adding a little flourish. But the fact that he says these holy resurrected people appeared to many others in the city of Jerusalem is actually the way we know that he didn't make it up. There were enough people who saw them that someone within Matthew's audience would have to be able to attest to it, to authenticate it. And enough people that you cannot easily and readily dismiss it. So what does it possibly mean? Well, I think it shows that Jesus' death and his subsequent resurrection from the dead upsets the normal order of things. Even the power of death is broken. 
those who fear God, those who turn to Christ might be raised from death such that it does not have the final say in a rather more profound way than Malcolm Brocklehurst's tangerine aeroplane. With darkness, with a torn curtain, with an earthquake, did you read that? And the rising of holy people to life. We see that Jesus' death is an upsetting death, but beyond the normal way, it upsets the natural order of things. Finally, we see that Jesus' death is an absorbing death. And once again, I don't mean that in the usual sense of it, grabbing our attention or soaking up our interests. When I say that Jesus' death is an absorbing death, I mean it absorbs the wrath and the judgment of God. And the clue that Jesus' death involves the judgment of God and absorbs the wrath of God is not just in the darkness that spread across the land in the middle of the day. That's an obvious sign of judgment if you know your Bible at all. It's in those words of Jesus in verse 46. I'd love you to read them with me. Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which means, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The crowd there didn't hear properly. They confused the Eloi, Eloi with the name Elijah. He was a, a prophet in the Old Testament, and there was a Jewish thought in that day that this giant of an Old Testament prophetic figure, Elijah, would appear from heaven to help at a time of crisis. And so in verse 47, they think he's calling Elijah. And they sit back to see in verse 49 if Elijah will turn up. But Jesus is not calling Elijah. He's crying out to God, quoting the desperate words of Psalm 22. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It's not a word we use a lot, is it? Forsaken. To be forsaken means to be abandoned or deserted to be renounced or to have been given up by someone. It's the sort of thing that uh, happens to old Olympic infrastructures, as I understand it. Here's the ski jump from the 1984 Winter Olympics in Sarajevo. Uh, or the kayaking venue from the 2008 Beijing Olympics. This is the tennis centre from the 1996 Atlanta Olympics. I know you don't care because tennis shouldn't be in there anyway, should it? Got Wimbledon. There's a swimming centre from the 2004 Athens Games. You think about it, you know, each one of those, at a point in time, objects of great attention and interest and affection, but now abandoned and deserted. They provide a, a striking visual idea of what it's like to be forsaken. And that's what's happening on the cross as Jesus died. The object of God's great affection and attention and interest is now abandoned and deserted, not just by his friends, but by the Father himself. In contrast to, um, to the film The Passion of the Christ, which you might have seen, Matthew pays very little attention to the physical nature of Jesus' torture, though it was physically horrific, very little attention to the medical details of his death, but he draws our focus on the fact that Jesus is being abandoned by his Father in heaven. The love, the glory, the friendship that had been shared between Father and Son was severed on the cross as God turns his face away from his perfect Son, deserting him in that fashion, the depths of which you and I will never fully comprehend. 
the eternal unity between the Father above and the Son below slashed as Jesus hung there on the cross isolated. Really is one way of thinking about hell, being deserted and cut off from all the goodness of God. And friends, that is haunting. But even that is not the full extent of it because the Father does not only forsake or abandon His eternal Son, He pours out His righteous judgment that all of our sins and shortcomings and follies and frailties deserve upon His Son who absorbs them upon Himself, in Himself, as He hung on the cross. Do you know that Jesus' death was uh, uncharacteristically quick by the standards of the day where a criminal might hang there for hours and hours possibly even days before giving out three hours three hours was all it took for Jesus' body to expire and I take it that's because the worst of what he suffered the part that Matthew draws our focus to is the spiritual anguish of absorbing the penalty and the just wrath of God for a world full of sin. Our rebellion against God, our ignorance and indifference towards Him, our inability to consistently love Him and serve others before ourselves, of which we're all naturally guilty. And I'm sure I'm worse than you. It was an absorbing death, as Jesus not only withstood the severing of an eternal and infinite relationship with His Father, but in that sense became the enemy of God that we naturally are, though he himself was perfect, taking the punishment our shortcomings deserve. It was an historical death. It really happened. An upsetting death that overturned the natural order of things, opening up access to God and life beyond the grave. And as we've just seen, an absorbing death in which he was forsaken by God and soaked up the just judgment of God that we all deserve. And I take it that's why we call it Good Friday, right? Because this death has the possibility of accomplishing good things for humanity. Like a relationship with God where we can confidently approach Him. Like the forgiveness of sins in which the penalty we deserve has been paid once and for all by another. Like the surety of eternal life because God's justice has been served, His wrath has been absorbed and his welcoming arms are wide open. But how can we possibly access all of that? How are we to respond? There are hints, I think, within this passage of both inappropriate and appropriate responses to Jesus following his death unlike any other. Uh, an inappropriate response is to mock him, which was... The response of the majority there from the religious leaders of the day to the general bystanders and even the criminals on either side of him in the verse just before our passage. You know, I think that when that single soldier held up a drink to Jesus in verse 48, I think it was an act of kindness rather than an act of mockery, but even that's inadequate. Being just mildly supportive or a little bit appreciative, it's just inadequate if Jesus was truly forsaken by God and absorbed the righteous wrath 
that our sins and shortcomings deserve. No, I think you start to see an appropriate response from the centurion there in verse 55, who exclaimed in terror, surely he was the son of God. You know, the darkness, the earthquake, the way he died, all lead this outsider, a professional Roman soldier and executioner, to conclude that Jesus is who he always claimed to be, the son of God. That is God's long-awaited and appointed king over us all. It's that sort of acknowledgement that is the beginning of an appropriate response to Jesus' death. You can see it in the devotion of the women who remain with Jesus even through his crucifixion and burial, even when all the others, including the disciples, had fled Jesus. And acceptance of Jesus' claims and devotion to him personally, well, that's the kind of response that's required. And even further, perhaps, in the actions of Joseph of Arimathea, who went to Pilate, the Roman governor, to ask for Jesus' body. Now, give it over. Joseph was a member of the Jewish religious establishment. We're told earlier in Matthew's Gospel that he opposed the plot to take Jesus' life. And by asking for Jesus' body, Joseph certainly risks becoming a social outcast from his fellow Jews, and perhaps much worse, from the Romans. Nevertheless, he offers to Jesus his own tomb, which I imagine would be an item of some worth. So friends, can I humbly ask you this morning, is that the sort of response that you have made? Have you moved beyond mockery, beyond ignorance or indifference? Have you moved beyond even mild admiration to a point where you gratefully accept Jesus' claims about himself, where you devote your life to following him? even at significant personal cost or risk. Well, that's a big thing to do. And to do that, you might need to find out more. So find out more. Come along again. Come along again on Sunday or the next Sunday. Sunday after that. Pretty much open on Sundays. Come to Christianity Explored next term. That'd be good. Take a copy of that essential Jesus, which I might have left down there, that Bruce was talking about on your way out. It's a whole stack there. Find out more. Of course, you maybe know enough to know that today is a day of action. Well, you know, it'd be a good day to take action. You don't know it all. Nobody knows it all. But you know enough to accept Jesus as your king and to devote your life to following him, even at personal cost. Well, today is a good day to do that. And if you'd like to do that, there'll be people up the front, including myself and Bruce, who would love to talk with you and perhaps pray with you about how you might start doing that. Truth is, the best person to talk to might be the person you're sitting next to, the person you came along with. Friends, as we finish up, I want to say, Jesus' death is unlike any other. It's real, it's upsetting, it's absorbing, and it compels us to accept his claims, to follow him with our lives and then to experience the wonders of an open relationship with God, the forgiveness of sins, and a glorious eternal life. Good Friday is a good day to do just that. And I really do commend him to you. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I do want to thank you for the Lord Jesus. On this day, we commemorate, we remember with glad hearts, his sacrifice on the cross, uh, certainly a real death, 
but uh, death that upset the natural order so that we could have relationship with you, open, no longer barred, and, and absorbing death, where he took the punishment that all of our sins, shortcomings, follies and frailties, well, that we deserved. So we thank you for that. Let that great event move our hearts to follow him, accepting his claims, and then being devoted to him personally, even at great cost. And Lord, for any friends that are here today who have not yet considered that, I pray you might put it on their hearts and minds to do that. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.